Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can applaud. That's okay. Thanks. Thank you for coming up here. Thank you, guys. We have gifts for all the families, so please don't miss us. Thank you, Kate, for helping us, and thank you, Charlie, for helping me. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me? And, I, and if you don't have your Bible, I would encourage you to find one nearby. If you can, it will be easier. Uh, to the book of Isaiah. This is where we're continuing our series on hope through judgment. And we'll see that theme here clearly this morning. Isaiah is close to Psalms. Psalms is kind of the middle of your Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, it's an easy way to find it. Once you're in Psalms, just sort of flipped forward a few books and you'll find Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be looking at seven, chapter 7 verse 1 through 9, 7. That's all kind of one unit. But for now, I'm just going to read the first 17 verses of Isaiah 7. So as, as Pastor Wayne says, when you got it, let me know. Got it? Got it? Okay. <laughs> chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too small a thing to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be destroyed. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. And before I dismiss our children, I actually have a question for you all. 
Can you shout it out? Your answers? Okay. What are you afraid of? The dark. That's a good answer. What else? Anyone? Snakes? Sharks? What else? What's that? Cockroaches. Yes. Terrifying. Yeah. That's, that's great, guys. Let me ask the adults. What are you guys afraid of? Shout it out. Snakes and cockroaches. Yeah. Missing something. I'm afraid of missing something. Yeah. F- what, what was that? Poverty. Rejection. Loneliness. War. Failure. Old age. Like cancer. That's a scary word, isn't it? Some of you have heard of, he's a well-known pastor, Tim Keller, passed away Friday of pancreatic cancer. God was with him, and yet he died of pancreatic cancer. God promises us, guys, in our fear that he is with us and that we don't have to be afraid. But apparently it doesn't mean you don't get cancer. Apparently it doesn't mean you don't face the scariness of a diagnosis or the pain of a disease. Apparently it doesn't mean that you don't encounter cockroaches (laughs) or the dark. The promise isn't that we won't experience scary things, but that in the scariest moments our God is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And he never leaves us. Even as it was read, Kevin read over James, even in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us in our fear. Wherever you are today, and wherever you might find yourself in the future, God is with you. And if you lay your weary self in his everlasting arms, he will hold you. If you lay your burdens down, he will lift you up. If you turn to him in your exhaustion and in your fear and in your pain, in your loneliness, you will find rest for your souls. Even in the scariest shadow of all, death. I believe the Good Shepherd walked Tim Keller through the valley of the shadow of death to the other side and welcomed him home. He was with him. As Keller himself said, all death can do to one who believes in Jesus is make their lives infinitely better. He is the God who is with us. And so with that said, children, I invite you to join us for Children's Church and God will go with you and he'll also stay in here with us. And so invite both Children's Church and Crossroads. And as they're doing that, feel free to greet your neighbor. You can stand if you like.
All right, let's make our ways back. <clears throat> if you will, make your way back to the seat. Now with the kids gone, there's a lot more empty seats so you can find a comfortable chair. Would you pray with me as we, as we delve into Isaiah's remarkable prophecies here? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you, are, you have promised to be the God who is with us, even though we don't deserve it, even though uh, we don't even ask for it at times. You promise to be with us because you love us freely and fully. Lord, we thank you that this truth of the universe at the center of all reality is love, the God who is love and the God who is present. Lord, would you be present with us and would you, as we sang this morning, as Christian and the band led us, Lord, would we just be able to quiet our souls in your presence, in your comforting and strong presence? And Lord, would it be strong among us this morning? Would you bless us with your clear and manifest presence? Lord, we need it. We pray in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking this morning at three bizarrely named children. Unlike James, which is an awesome name, there are some weird names that uh, are symbolic names. We'll look at three, three, the first being Shir Jashub, the son that Isaiah takes with him to uh, the viaduct to confront Ahaz. And then there's another son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, meaning uh, the prey quickens uh, and uh, the spoil speeds or something like that. And then Emmanuel which means, of course, God with us, the three symbolic sons. So beginning with Shir Jashub, his name means a remnant shall return or perhaps repent. And it's significant that he takes this boy with him as he confronts Ahaz. Now, it's important to establish the context. The first three verses of chapter 7 tell us what's happening, and that is there is pressure from uh, these two nations, one, their sister nation, northern Israel, and another foreign nation, sort of to the northeast of Israel, called Aram, or Syria, have formed a pact, a coalition, an alliance against the encroaching Assyrian Empire. And so on the screen, you'll see a map of kind of what's been happening. And so if you can make that out, the blue is northern Israel, the yellow there, that sort of uh, goldenrod, I don't know if that's the right color, uh, that's Judah. And then you can see Aram or uh, Syria up there. And you can see King Rezin is way up there in the north in Damascus, that's the capital of Syria. And King Pekah, who's the son of Remaliah, who he kept referring to as the son of Remaliah, uh, in the, the, the capital of northern Israel, which was Samaria. And so they're pressuring Judah to join their coalition against the Assyrian hordes. And King Ahaz wisely knows that this is a foolish pact, that it is doomed for destruction. So he resists. And as a result, northern Israel and Syria are attacking Judah. They're going to come and conquer Jerusalem and replace Ahaz with a puppet king, the son of Tabeel, he's called. So they can rule, they can have their own man on the throne following their will. So that's the context. This coalition has been 10 years old by now, but the attack on Jerusalem is new. 
And so there's a promise here. It's both a kind of judgment, but also a, a, a comfort. Sheer jeshub means a remnant will turn, a remnant will return. There will be survival of God's people. And when they hear the news of this attack, they see troop movement from the northern borders coming down. They are terrified. It says the heart of Ahaz and his whole house, the whole, the whole uh, team of advisors, all the courtiers are terrified. It says they tremble like trees of the forest in a mighty wind. <laughs> they are shaking in their boots. And the word of Isaiah through God to, the, to him is, don't be afraid. This is no real threat. In fact, look again what he says there in uh, verse 4 and following. He says, um, uh, verse, after he meets him and the, uh, in verse 3, in the highway to the washer's field, the end of the conduit of the upper pool, probably because he's inspecting his water supply for a, com a coming invasion. He wants to make sure that the gates of Jerusalem being shut, he'll be able to have water that will be protected to, uh, in the event of a siege. And so he's, he's, in ch he's checking the water supply when Isaiah confronts him and says, verse 4, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Like these two chunks of wood that have burned out and are just smoldering. Their fire is gone. One translator renders it, these two tossed cigarette butts. That's how he compares these kings he's so terrified of. And what does he do? God puts things in perspective. He says, listen, it will not stand their plan. It's not going to last, verse 7. And then he, he kind of diminishes this fearful view of these great kings that Ahaz has. For the head of Syria is Damascus, big whoop. That's the capital city. And the head of Damascus is resin, a cigarette butt. Within 65 years of Ephraim, another name for northern Israel, because this isn't confusing enough already, <laughs> Ephraim will be shattered even as a people. And sure enough, this is around 735 B.C. In 670, 65 years later, Ezerhaddon, a famous Assyrian emperor, will come, not having already taken northern Israel out of the land, replace them with foreign people who would repopulate the land, thus annihilating northern Israel as a geopolitical entity. That people group became known as the Samaritans in Jesus' day. So absolutely annihilated within 65 years. And then Ephraim will be shattered, and then the head of Ephraim, what is that? It's Samaria. And the head of Samaria, I'm not even going to use his name, Pekka. I'm going to call him the, he's just Remaliah's boy. Do you see how God's putting his fears into perspective? Sometimes we need that. What is it that you're afraid of? And then put it in perspective of the light of God's glory and majesty. It will all of a sudden loom a little bit smaller. Even, even death itself looms small in the light of the king who's conquered it and trampled it underfoot. 
And then there's this call to faith. If you're not firm in faith, and the you is plural, y'all, y'all house of David. If you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. This is a clever play on words in the Hebrew. Some render it this way. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. The message renders it, if you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. Another translator, Ray Ortland, says, you'll live by faith or you won't live at all. If you don't stand by faith, you won't stand at all. And this isn't just generic faith, like you gotta have faith. This is faith specifically in the promises of God. It's specifically the faith in what God has written in his word, and specifically, as we'll see, what Isaiah has written. It's faith in his word, in his self-revelation that we are called to. And that might at first surprise us because when we hear a word like have, you know, if you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. If you're like me, you're going to be maybe trembling a little bit because how firm is my faith, especially in the face of great fears and my anxieties. But I want to be clear here. It's not so much that your faith is great as much as what you're trusting in is great and you're secure in that. Ahaz's problem isn't that he had honest doubts that he was wrestling with. Ahaz's unbelief was a settled decision. It was a willful unbelief. I will not trust. Look what he goes on to say in verses 10 through 13. He offers a promise. I mean, when God offers you a sign... He says, like, the sky's the limit. You want to go as high as heaven? Let's do it. You want to go down to the depths of the grave? Let's do it. And your response is, no, I'm not going to test the Lord. <laughs> that is false piety cloaking unbelief. It wasn't that he didn't believe. It's that he did not want to believe. Ahaz strangely felt more at home in his panicked anxiety then he felt at home trusting in the care of God. He felt more at home in his pride to save himself than to humble himself and depend on the Lord. And so he refused to believe. And so God says, is, is it enough that you weary men? You're going to weary me? Notice the, the subtle shift in language too. Ask your God, the Lord your God, any sign. And then he says, is it, is it too much that you have wearied men, you weary my God? Now Isaiah shifts. He's apparently not your God. He's just my God. Because Ahaz has settled in his unbelief. He is determined to disbelieve. The simple call to trust in the Lord who promised to be with Judah seemed too naive to Ahaz. He, in fact, we know from 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings, he had already made up his mind for his solution. You know what it was? Go to the king of Assyria for protection. And Isaiah is saying, this is not going to go well for you because I'm going to bring the same king who's protecting you against you. It's like it's been said, it's like, it's like the mouse who goes and chases the cat to protect him from the rats, but the mouse ends up as dessert. And so that's what happens. The king of Assyria comes against him and, as we'll see, devastates him. Verses 14 through 17, he gives the promise of Emmanuel, which is both a kind of sign of promise of God's being with his people even in judgment, but also a sign of judgment, a sign of threat. 
Look what he says in verses 14 and following. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. We'll explain what curds and honey means in a moment. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And indeed, in seven, this is 735, and by 733, Syria is gone, destroyed by Assyrians. And northern Israel, by 722, completely erased. And then later, in 701, Assyria would march into Judah, all the way to the gates of Jerusalem, swallowing up the whole country, all but destroying Judah. So that's what he says in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not come since the day that Ephraim, northern Israel, split from Judah after King Solomon. That was a traumatic event in, in, the, in the history of God's people. It's when the kingdom of David was split in half, and it wasn't even in half. Five-sixths of the tribes went with northern Israel. They, they betrayed David's house and formed their own capital city, their own temple, their own religious system in northern Israel. Ten of the twelve, only Benjamin and Judah stayed faithful to the house of David. And he says, it's going to be as bad as that, what's coming, because of your unbelief. And we note that fulfillment happens in 732 against Syria, 722 against northern Israel, and 701, as we'll see in chapter 8, against Judah herself. And this, this raises the, the question of what is it you're leaning on in your fear and your anxiety? What is it you're, you're hoping in? Because the reality is when, like Ahaz, we put our hopes and another solution besides the promised God who says, I am with you. Whatever we put our hope in, whatever we lean on, will not only totter and fall, it'll be a weapon against us. That friend, quotation marks, speaking here metaphorically, that we're trusting in, that friend we're leaning on, will prove our enemy. What are we're leaning on for our anxiety, for to deal with our fear, to cope with our restlessness or our pride? In marriage, if I'm if I'm holding up marriage as the as my salvation, as the solution to my loneliness, the solution to my lack of connection, the solution for my restlessness, I will put a burden on that marriage that will frustrate it and destroy it and turn it against me and it will become an enemy to my loneliness, an enemy to my connection. If I do the same thing with my success, professionally, if I make my success the key to my, my soul's rest, I will finally be able to rest when I am successful in this. Well, as Tim Keller said, if I succeed, actually, it will go to my head, and I become arrogant. If I fail, it will go to my heart, and I will be devastated. It'll become my enemy, and we will inevitably fail. Even when we succeed, the fear of failure haunts us continually. 
or financial security, right? If we put our rest in finances and if having enough money, that is also a fear that never leaves us. When is enough enough? And when will the economy be stable enough? And is it okay? And rather than soothing my anxieties, it will dramatically increase my anxieties. What are you trusting in? What are you leaning on to find rest? Because if it's not God, what you're leaning on will end up producing more anxiety, more fear, and more pride, or hopelessness. Well, as I said, the, 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 this language of honey and curds, that might at first sound really nice, yogurt and honey, I like that, uh, but it's actually the language of poverty. Because God does describe Israel positively, glowingly, as the land of milk and honey. But here the description is meant to be a land that is, that is unfarmed because it's unpeopled. It's wild. And so take a look at verses um, uh, 21 through 23. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And abundance there is... Um, sarcastic. Verse 23, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines with a thousand shekels of silver will now be briars and thorns. Only with bow and arrow can a man enter into the, what was once farmland. It's so wild. They'll have to go in with his weapons. For the land will be all briars and thorns. Verse 25, and as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. It'll be an unmanned wild land is what Judah will become because of the Assyrian devastation. Which leads us to the next point, which is Isaiah's second symbolically named son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which as I said means something like the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, which in other words means the enemy you're afraid of is gonna be devastated and that right quickly. So, uh, let's take a look at chapter eight, verses one and following, it's on the screen. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet, write on it in common characters, belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberachiah, to attest for me. So these are, this is public news. This isn't a private sign just for Ahaz. This is to be publicized and borne witness to. And I went to the prophetess, presumably Isaiah's wife, and notice the very similar language here from 7 verse 14. In 7 14 it says, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son. Now it's past tense. The prophetess did conceive and bear a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus, remember that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the part of the play on the boy's name, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And sure enough, we see that happening. In 734, just a year after this, Tiglath-Pileser, another great name, who is the Assyrian emperor, marches down the coast of Israel, cutting off the supply line to Egypt and takes over ch large chunks of northern Israel, particularly Galilee 
and the region beyond the Jordan. Remember that, because that's going to be significant. And then he goes on to describe in verses um, 5 through 8, really, the description of judgment that he already, he already unpacked in chapter 7 and how this is going to happen. Verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. The waters of Shiloh were the waters that were, were the spring source in Jerusalem from the, the Kidron Valley that were, that were directed into Jerusalem. And so he's saying, you refuse the natural sources of water. I'll give you water, the water of the river Euphrates, which will actually flood you and fill up Emmanuel up to his neck, all but almost destroying Judah. But as we'll see, Judah is saved. In other words, you, the gentle waters God provides will be replaced with the rough and roaring waters of Assyria. So he, he calls Assyria the river, the Euphrates. Earlier in chapter 7, he referred to them as the flies that he would whistle for, the bees that would fill the land and nest, and a razor that will shorn Israel and shorn Judah. Now he's comparing it to a great river that will drown the land. And notice Emmanuel reappears there in verse 8. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. O promised child, your land will be swamped with Assyrians. But then a chorus of the remnant, those who believe in the Lord, sing in verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. The peoples here being the nations. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. It's a song of taunt. It's saying to the enemies of God's people, the Syrians, northern Israel, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians even, and saying, do your worst. Take counsel together. It will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us. Twice, Emmanuel is used here in 8, framing Mahar Shalal Hashbaz's significance as marking the time of northern Israel's eminent demise as well as Syria's and marking the coming judgment of the Assyrians against Judah for their unbelief. Even though they disbelieve, even though Ahaz disbelieves, God will save Judah because despite their faithlessness, Emmanuel, God is with them. That's the point. And then the prophecy launches into a distant future. So take a look at verses 20, 11 and following. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Their hearts were shaking like trees in the forest before a mighty wind. They dreaded Ahaz, or rather, they dreaded uh, Rezin and the son of Remaliah. He's saying, don't be afraid of what this people fear. He's speaking to the remnant here. Before he gets into the distant future, he speaks to the present remnant and says, don't be afraid. And guys, how we need to hear this in our present age of anxiety and fear. We are worked up into a panic, and it's not even 2024 yet. It's coming. 
as Christians, we are called to quote Isaiah to be careful, to be quiet, to not be afraid. Why? Why can we be careful and quiet? Why can we still our souls when a war rages in Ukraine, when China threatens Taiwan, when, when the, the threat of nuclear holocaust seems to reemerge, when another contested and ugly presidential battles before us, when the economy is not looking good, how is it that we can be quiet and be still? Emmanuel, amen. Emmanuel, God is with us. And as Christians, my friends, we need to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. We need to ground the world in what's true. God is with us. God will protect us. We don't need to panic. We don't need to fly into fearful conspiracy theorizing. We don't need to be afraid. We live in confidence that Emmanuel is on his throne and he rules over all this mess and he is near to us. But he goes on, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. You won't be afraid what the world fears, but what will fill your horizon, not the panic of what's on CNN or Fox News, what will fill your horizon but the Holy One of Israel? What consumes your mental energy? Not your social media feed, I hope, but Emmanuel. What occupies your mind's focus? Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary to you. But to those who live in fear, he will be a stone of stumbling like he was for Ahaz, a rock of offense that we tripped over. But for those who fear God, for those who are, who are built their foundations on that rock, he will be a sanctuary, a place of rest, a comfort. And then he, he kind of launches into this future that I mentioned earlier, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. It's almost as if he's saying, this word isn't even really for this contemporary audience. This is for a later audience. Bind it up for a later time. I will wait for the Lord in the meantime, who was hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. This is a word for his disciples both now and in the future, the remnant who have turned, who have believed, will ultimately be restored. Verse 18, behold, Isaiah says, I in the children whom the Lord has given me as signs and portents in Israel. In other words, I and my symbolically named children are here bearing witness, giving, incarnating in their very lives the word of God to this generation and future generations. The Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Why? Because he's with us. He's Emmanuel. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, what a great way to describe the world's means of trying to clutch at control, to manipulate the universe. They chirp and mutter. It's useless. And that's what people will do in panic. They will go to foolish places to get answers in their desperation. But not you because you're not living out of anxiety. You're fearing the Lord. And so you're settled. You're rooted in God's word. And you go to the right place. So we don't go to 
the talking heads on our screens who chirp and mutter? Should not a people inquire of their God? Yes. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. He's referring to his own seal, testimony, his own prophecy. Read the word. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. There's no light in them. They, they can bring you no enlightenment. They can only darken further. They will pass through the land. And here's, here's now a description of those who have rejected, who have chosen and settled unbelief. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry because of Assyria and then later Babylon. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously. Does that sound familiar? Rage and contemptuous talk? Can you guys relate to that? That's what's gonna happen to people who don't have grounding in faith. They become enraged when the, when the politics don't go their way, when the economy doesn't look positive. They lose it, but not Christians. God help us, not Christians. Not those whose hope and trust is in the Lord. They speak contemptually against their king, against their president, against whoever's ruling over them and their God. They look up to heaven. That's not a positive thing. That's a, that's a this kind of thing. And they will look to the earth, but behold, all they'll see is distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. Such is the fate of settled disbelief. But God's word proved true in the days of Maharshal al-Hashbaz. Say that three times. <laughs> it proved true. And it was sealed up. And future generations could go back and go, yep, Isaiah was right. And so his coming long-term predictions were all the more confirmed. Because now, as we'll see in chapter 9, Emmanuel isn't just some boy of Isaiah. He's David's son. Look at with me in chapter 9, verse 1. He is Emmanuel, Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter 9, verses 1 and following. Speaking of that, in the same breath of the gloom and the anguish that they will encounter in unbelief. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. That's the land of northern Israel that was first crushed and oppressed by the Assyrian army in 734 and then again in 722. But in the latter time, that's in the last days, in the distant future, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The very, the very countryside that was ravished, first ravished by Assyria, will be the place where light first dawns. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's past tense because it's a prophetic future. It's as good as done. They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Oh, Emmanuel brings good news to a brokenhearted and even sinful people. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We'll talk about Midian next week. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, hearkening back to chapter 8, chapter 7. What kind of child? The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will set to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who is this referring to? Well, the Gospel of Matthew makes it quite clear. In fact, he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 when Jesus begins his public ministry, and it reads like this. Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? It's the two territories he lists, Isaiah lists in verse 1. So that what was spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz wasn't actually named Emmanuel, and neither was Jesus. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. But Jesus did wear the title much better, Emmanuel, than did Mahar, old Mahar. I'll just call him that. Jesus would be born like Emmanuel was prophesied in poverty. The poverty that was the result of Ahaz's refusal to trust in the Lord. He would also be heir to an empty throne, a throne that Ahaz evacuated. And after Ahaz, all the kings of Judah were puppet kings. Ahaz in some ways was the last of the house of David until a child was given to us and a son was born who would take up the throne of his father David and rule with justice and righteousness and bring peace. And he did bring peace. He established peace in his own body. In his death on the cross, the judgment of God justly pointed against us, he absorbed in his own flesh so that you and I have peace with God. And we also have peace with each other. It's a peace that's continuing to extend. Indeed, the young woman who conceived was the Virgin Mary, not the prophetess, who was just an anticipation of things to come. And through his resurrection and ascension, he now reigns over not just Judah, but what did he tell his disciples? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He reigns over all authority in the cosmos. That is good reason to rest our souls. Who is king but the one who has come? And I get, there's a lot of, there's a lot of already here that, I, that Jesus already fulfills, but there's a lot of not yet. The, the garment rolled in blood and the battle boot of tumult burned in the fire, that's Isaiah 2, when they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That hasn't happened yet. It's still in process. But guys, the promises have been gloriously confirmed by Isaiah, haven't they? In his own lifetime, in the lifetime of Jesus, and they're being confirmed now. 
And so you, we have every reason to believe, not that we will do this, we'll figure this out, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you believe? Then rest your souls in that promise. The Lord will, in his zeal, accomplish all of this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And let's sing to this great king. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your precious promises that you've preserved in Scripture, promises that are thousands and thousands of years old, repeatedly confirmed. You have proven true, Lord. Give us faith to trust in you and to rest our weary souls in you.